here uh, shortly. But First uh, Peter chapter five, <clears throat> and um, Peter gives uh, he addresses this particular letter to uh, strangers, uh, basically those that are believers that are around the world. So it's not a distinct church or distinct group of people, but all those that are believers and have trusted Christ their Savior. Persecution at this point uh, was was very, very pronounced. Is getting very a lot worse. A lot of people were beginning to be martyred and put to death for their faith. And um, so Peter writes these things, and he encourages people throughout the letter. In chapter 2, chapter 4 especially, he deals with um, standing fast in the face of persecution, being faithful. As we get to chapter 5, first, uh, first Peter chapter number 5, he uh, he gives some instructions to uh, the elders, those that are in leadership in the church. And then uh, he gives uh, some instructions to believers in general, uh, how they're to conduct themselves and some of the things that they should be um, focusing on. <coughs> Excuse me. And uh, I'm going to read through from the beginning of the chapter so you can see what he's told elders, but the uh, and the verses we're going to be looking at more carefully are going to be from verse 5 and following. But we're going to begin reading in verse number 1. The elders which are among you I exhort, who am also an elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and also a partaker of the glory that shall be revealed, feed the flock of God which is among you, taking the oversight thereof, not by constraint, but willingly, not for filthy lucre, but of a ready mind, neither as being lords over God's heritage, but being in samples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd shall appear, uh, ye shall receive a crown of glory that fadeth not away. So this is the charge that he gives to elders. Uh, I was driving down the road yesterday with my son. He and I were talking about some things. And uh, he was looking at a church building in, uh, up in Festus, or in Crystal City. <coughs> and he said, he said, Dad, do they have a school there? And I said, no. He said, well, then what are all those... Two floors. It was uh, First Baptist there in Crystal City. He said, "What are all those uh, classrooms? Are they just all offices, or uh, it seems like there's a whole wing of just two stories of classrooms?" And uh, it got us involved in a discussion. Uh, and the, the discussion was this: uh, I said, uh, "Son, those are Sunday school rooms. They built that building so that they had plenty of Sunday school rooms." And he said, "That's that's odd." He said. You know, is Sunday school really that big of a thing? He, he's used to the way things are today, where, generally speaking, you don't have a whole lot of people come to Sunday school. You have a lot of people show up for the 11 o'clock service. A uh, few people stay for the afternoon service, and some people come on Wednesday night. But you don't... Uh, 11 o'clock service is kind of, if we call it... I hate to use this word, but we call it the big service. That's the main service, or the preaching service. <coughs> And I told him, I, I tried to explain to him, I said, that, that wasn't always the case. Back in the 60s, 50s and 60s, even into the 70, early 70s, the big service in, in churches was Sunday school. Uh, there would be a, a full parking lot for Sunday school, and then everybody would leave after Sunday school and have just a few people stay for the 11 o'clock service. And then they would come back, and the same thing, the, the, the evening service and the Wednesday night service were also kind of low, but Sunday school was kind of... Kind of the big, the big service that everybody came to. And as we got to, to talking on that, I, I, my, the wheels began to turn, and because these are all things that I've, I've known and thought of probably as individual thoughts, but for the first time kind of put them all together. And that was this. 
that there was a time where people uh, seemed to want to be taught Scripture. And what, what ended up happening was in the 11 o'clock services, or the, the, the main preaching services we would call them, that was the service that they would have the choir, and they would have special music. And everybody was kind of all together. They weren't in small groups or classrooms where they were studying the, the Scriptures together. And I said, you know, it's, it's interesting because over time it evolved from the big service being on Sunday school to the big service being the 11 o'clock service and very little interest in Sunday school. I said, you can almost see the mindset over the last 40 years or so uh, the transition of people who moved from wanting to know Scripture and to learn doctrine and to be in a, in a teaching, uh, study, line upon line, verse by verse, studying of Scripture, to more of a sitting in a more generalized crowd with a, I hate to call it this, but really more of a production of a service. Because the choir singing, they've spent a month practicing and they sing it beautifully in all the parts. Uh, there's special music that get up and sing. And I thought this thought, and, and it's the first time I think I've ever thought this, that even in our independent, fundamental, Bible-believing, King James Version, conservative Baptist churches, there was a digression from teaching doctrine of, of Scripture, and that being the main thing, to almost moving into an, an, an entertainment-type style. It, it, the entertainment value, and I hate to use that word because we wouldn't think of what we do in our 11 o'clock service as an entertainment value, but compared to Sunday school, it, it was. You had a choir, you had well-rehearsed music, and people began to not necessarily want to sit down and study 45 minutes of Scripture. They wanted to have all of the, the, the pre preliminary things going on and the announcements. And we really kind of contributed, without even thinking about it, we really kind of contributed to the mindset that took off like wildfire in the last 20 years of this seeker-friendly and entertainment-friendly um, type of services. And I hate to be blaming, and I don't mean to put the blame back on independent fundamental Baptist churches that were King James Version, but the truth is we allowed that transition to take place where we began to, even and even pastors are guilty of it, and I have told Jonathan, I said, even I, when somebody asked me what is our schedule of services on Sunday, I refer to the big service or the main service being our main preaching service being 11 o'clock. Why don't we say that, boy, Sunday school is at 10 o'clock, and that's where you can learn about Scripture, you can dig into Scripture and really get some line-upon-line -line teaching about doctrine. Uh, we've tried to turn our Wednesday night services more into a, uh, a teaching of, of doctrine uh, and, and learning some things uh, very strenuously, digging deeper into Scripture on some things. Whereas the 11 o'clock service, even though it's a, a good preaching service, it's really geared more to try to reach, as a, it's more of a generalized preaching to, uh, to encourage Christians to get right with the Lord or to get closer to the Lord or to share the gospel. And it seems to be those types of services week after week. And I thought of that as I was reading this chapter 5 this week of 1 Peter. Because Peter charges the elders. Notice what he charges them to do in verse number 2. 
He says, feed the flock of God which is among you. Feed the flock of God which is among you. We've got to be so careful that we don't get this mindset of going through the motions. And I told Jonathan as we were talking about this yesterday, I said, a lot of people will come on on the 11 o'clock service so that they can say, I go to church every week. And so that they can tell people, uh, hey, I, I take my Bible, I go to such and such Baptist church, I'm there every week for church service at 11 o'clock. Now, not everybody does. But I know some people are hindered and there's some physical problems. People can't always make it. But there are people, a lot of people, that come just from the 11 o'clock service just for the purpose of being able to appear like they're good, good people to other folks. And that's their only reason for doing it. Or their only reason for doing it is because that's the, the one that they don't really have to give a lot of thought to. They don't have to really pour their, their minds into thinking about Scripture. Uh, or they enjoy the music, uh, which we don't have a choir right now, but uh, we used to. And those types of things would happen. Uh, suffice to say this, that I think even in the day we live, if we're not careful, we'll be, we'll, be, we'll be so critical looking outward at these other ministries that are so entertainment-oriented that if we're not careful, even without realizing it, we in these churches that are very conservative-minded can even contribute to that by de-emphasizing how much we teach and preach on doctrine and by emphasizing more of this um, special music and and. And choirs. Now, I'm not against special music. I think music helps prepare the heart. But we've got to be careful that we don't make that the big thing for these, these services. That we say, well, we don't have a good service because we don't have a great choir up there. Now we're dealing with entertainment value. We've got to be careful, uh, uh, so careful of these things. Again, I think a good choir that's done well can be a helpful tool. But it ought not be something that causes people to say, that's why I go to that service. They need to come because they're being fed by the Word of God. Uh, the gimmicks, the promotions of trying to get people to come to church. I've taught, taught this two, two different times now as we've taught on the purpose of our church and over the last several years. There's a series I do, and we'll probably do it again here in the next eight or nine months again, because about every two or three years I like to go over what is our purpose as a church. And it's a series of messages that we preach and we teach on this. And in that, we talk about the idea that we're not into this idea of doing big promotions to try to get people to come. I've learned this over the years, that if God is doing a work in a church, it's not very long before word gets out. And people come to see God's work in that church. You don't have to have a carnival. You don't have to put on the clowns and have the popcorn and the candy and the big balloons outside. You just preach the gospel. You feed the flock and let the Holy Spirit do the work. And uh, so Peter deals with this. Now, that's not the message, but I did want to share that with you because uh, I think sometimes uh, if we look back in our last 20 or 30 years of history, I think even though we're critical of these other churches that have gone the way of entertainment, that there have been a number of our types of churches that have contributed to that mindset. Either, either intentionally or unintentionally, I believe we've contributed to it. That we have de-emphasized the teaching of doctrine. Now, as we get to verse number 5, he begins to teach uh, other believers. Uh, again, he has addressed this letter to strangers, um, others that have trusted in Christ. And he says this in verse 5, Likewise, ye younger, submit yourselves unto the elder. Now, <coughs> 
And he says, Yea, all of you be subject one to another, and be clothed with humility. For God resisteth the proud, and giveth grace to the humble. Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God, that He may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon Him, for He careth for you. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil is a roaring lion, walketh about, seeking whom he may devour, whom resist steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same afflictions are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world. But the God of all grace, who hath called us unto His eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after that ye have suffered a while, make you perfect, establish, strengthen, settle you. Now, I want to go over a number of things here that Peter instructs believers that they ought to do. It ought to characterize their life. The first one is, he tells them that they need to submit uh, themselves and he says here, the younger to the elder, speaking of those that are less mature to those that are more mature in ministry, not necessarily the elder is a title of pastor in this particular instance because he's using the term younger, so it's, it's dealing in this context with age. But he's talking here about submitting, first of all, to those that are older than you, but also then, he says, to submit yourselves one to another. That there needs to be a mutual submission, a mutual uh, trying to benefit or edify one another. <clears throat> that we don't just sit back in our churches and expect everybody to do something for us, but that we also, in turn, try to be a blessing and help them. I was ex- I was extremely excited as a pastor during COVID. Um, uh, we had a, a period of time where a number of our people, I think seven or eight families at one time, all had COVID together. And uh, I, I like a church that does everything together. Even having COVID together was a good thing. And uh, I, I would get phone calls, and fortunately I had had it a few weeks before and was kind of over it and was able to get out and help around a little bit and a few other folks in the church that were able to still get out and around. And I would get several phone calls a day uh, from people that had COVID, that were in their, on their beds and, and sick, and they would call me up and say, Pastor, I was talking to brother so-and-so or sister so-and-so, and, and I was wondering, could you go do this for them? And in all of that time, about two-week period of time, I even made comment to some people. I don't think I had one person call me and say, Pastor, I've got a need. But they all called me and said, I was talking to so-and-so in our church, and they have a need. Can you help them with it? I thought, boy, what a blessing that is. Because here are people that are suffering in their own right, and yet they're looking out for and being careful for others. They're calling to check on each other. They're worried about making sure that they're taken care of. And I believe this is what, what Peter is speaking of here, that, that there not be uh, people with, with pride in the, in the church, that some feel that they're above others, but that we submit one to another in this, in brotherly love. That there be a general consensus of, of edification in the church, that we're trying to help each other grow. That yes, we're all imperfect, but we're all striving to grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we want to help and encourage one another in this. And if we see a brother overtaken in a fault, we're not the kind that are going to come up to him and talk bad about him to everybody we see and kick him while he's down. We're going to come to him with tears in our eyes, and we're going to pray with them. We're going to help them every way we can to get get that right. And we would hope they would do the same for us. Peter says we need to submit one to another. Secondly, notice he says this in verse number 5. that He says, Yea, all of you be subject one to another and be clothed with humility. Don't just be humble, but this ought to be something that characterizes you. It ought to be something that just is a part of who you are. Be clothed with humility. And I love what somebody said, and I've used this definition before. (coughs) 
they, they were trying to describe uh, humility, and they said, pride is not thinking less of yourself than you should. Because there are some people that, that, that beat themselves up and they talk poorly of themselves in front of other people and they feel like that's how they're humble. It's not thinking less of yourself than you are, nor is it thinking more of yourself than you are. Humility is just not thinking of yourself. Not thinking of yourself, but putting others first. You don't have to, if somebody compliments you, you don't have to browbeat yourself and say, well, that's, oh, no, no, you just don't know me. You don't have to down yourself. You just don't have to think about yourself. I heard somebody years ago say, you ought to treat criticism and compliments the same way. You don't deserve either. That's the spirit of humility. To not think of yourself. Notice this. He says this. He says, when he talks about this uh, being clothed with humility, he says, for God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace to the humble. Now, this ties in with submitting ourselves or being subject one to another. Because when there's pride in the ranks, then certainly we're not submitting or, or being subject one to another. So he's going to, he's going to kind of focus on this sense of humility for a moment. And you'll notice that these things are going to begin to build on a foundation of humility. We get to verse 6, and the Bible says this, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that He may exalt you <coughs> in due time. Now, I think it's interesting that it says, Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. Because human nature is to be prideful. And there's no doubt that we can find somebody in this world that we are better than. Some of you are already thinking, you already know who it is, that you're better than they are. We have that tendency to compare ourselves by ourselves, don't we? Where true humility comes is not in comparing ourselves with somebody, but in comparing ourselves only with the Lord Jesus Christ. To humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God, to be able to stand in His presence and be humbled. If you take a moment to look through Scripture at the times that the Lord came to people, when He came to Moses and spoke to him, even in the burning bush, and even though uh, Moses doesn't see uh, God's form, he, he sees the fire and the, uh, the burning bush, he hears the voice. But if you remember, uh, God tells him, He says, take off your shoes, for the ground that you're standing on is holy ground. When He speaks to so many others, the, it talks about them trembling and falling. Paul on the road to Damascus he sees the light and he falls to the ground. And those around him, uh, they don't see what Paul sees. And Paul uh, cries out. He says, Who art thou, Lord? I think that's an interesting statement. Because, because even though he's saying, Who art thou? He's already admitting, No matter who you are, You've already got the ability to be the Lord of my life. You've already got full permission. You've got my attention here. You have control of me. He said, Who art thou, Lord? Isaiah, when he saw the Lord high and lifted up and his train filled the temple, he, he falls on his face and, and he says, Woe unto me, for I am a man of unclean lips. Others that have fallen in the presence of God and could not speak until God reached down and touched them and helped them. Why? Because the best way to get rid of our pride is to look at the Lord Jesus Christ. There was a professor in college that taught me something. He said, there are two things that will change your life, and I've never forgotten them. He said, the first one is to see God as He really is. And he said, the second thing is to see yourself the way God sees you. 
Boy, what a, what a testimony of humility is to have those two things in our life where we see God as He really is. And we begin to see ourselves the way that God sees us. And the truth is, we can, we can see all that God has chosen to reveal Himself to us, but that's it. The vast infiniteness of our God is unable to be comprehended by our minds. But that's the whole point, isn't it? For us to be humbled under the mighty hand of God. We might be prideful when we look at somebody else and say, boy, I'm better than them, I'm more skillful than them, I've got more talent than them, I behave better than them, or whatever the case is. But it's hard to be prideful when a wicked, ungodly, sinful human stands and looks at God and sees His absolute holiness. Hard to be prideful. Notice what else Peter tells him to do. He says, Humble yourselves therefore into the mighty hand of God that He may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon Him, for He careth for you. By the way, can I tell you this? You will do that more if you have the right view of who God is and if you have the right view of who you are. This humility is necessary for us to be able to do adequately what He tells us to do in verse number 7. To cast all of our care upon Him, for He careth for you. Because the prideful side of us says there are some things I can deal with. I don't need God to deal with those. That's pride. In order for us to get to the place where we cast all of our care upon Him, it takes absolute humility. It takes a realization that without Him, I can do how much? Nothing. The Bible teaches that, doesn't it? Why is it then that we feel like there are some things we can do without Him? Pride. Pride becomes the issue. So he says, casting all your care upon Him. So submit ourselves one to another. Be subject one to another. We need to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. Number three, he tells us, we are to cast our care... Uh, all of our care upon Him. Not just some of it, but casting all of our care upon Him. For He careth for us. <coughs> then I want you to note, <coughs> excuse me, also notice in verse number 8, it says, Be sober. Be vigilant. Why? Because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh to and fro, walketh about, I'm sorry, seeking whom he may devour. He's not out to hurt us, he's out to destroy us, he's out to devour us. And Peter says, you need to be sober and you need to be vigilant about this. It comes back to our humility. Because of our pride, we think we can handle this area of temptation. Because of our pride, we think we can, we can dabble in sin and not be controlled by it. Isn't it interesting that in the book of Hebrews chapter number 12, it tells us to lay aside the weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us. That sin that we dabble in, that we think is harmless, it will grab a hold of us so quick. Down in Florida, we have, uh, we, we, have, we called them sand spurs. And they were little burrs that when you walk through the grass, uh, I mean, all, they, they almost jump on you. Uh, they're so, I mean, literally, you just barely, barely touch them. And I mean, they are on you like that. And, boy, they are painful. You ever step on one, they have, they have reverse barbs in them, so when you go to pull them out, they don't want to come out of the skin. And, oh, they would hurt so bad. And for a young boy running around barefoot in the summertime and running through the grass, we'd always watch for these sand spurs. 
When I think of this sin, which just so easily beset us, I think often of those sand spurs. How easy they are to, to, to get a hold on you. How painful they are and how difficult they are to get away from you. And I'll tell you this, no matter how painful and how hard those sand spurs are to get away from you, the sin which does so easily beset us hurts us more and is harder to get rid of than those sand spurs. They just are. So Peter tells them, you need to be sober. Don't be so prideful of your life that you feel like you've got it all under control. Be sober. Be vigilant. Be watchful. This goes along with what we were teaching on in the 11 o'clock hour. We're living in a world where our, our sense of vigilance is, is almost non-existent. Uh, we, are, we become so separated and we only fellowship with those that are so separated uh, standard-wise and, and sin-wise that sometimes we're not aware of what's going on in the world. Now, I don't think you ought to go out and experience those things, but we certainly need to be aware that they're happening. We need to be salt and light in a world that's going through these things. And there are things that I've seen in the last eight or ten months of my life as I've been studying some stuff. There are some things I've become aware of that are happening in our churches that I had no idea was going on. Why? Because in my life there were some things I weren't quite as vigilant about as I should have been. There are some things we need to be sober-minded on. And again, it comes down to pride. Why would I not be sober? Why would I not be vigilant? Because I think I've got it under control. I'm, I'm handling my life pretty well right now, Pastor. I don't need to... Peter, I don't need to, I don't need to be vigilant. I mean, I can take care of it. If the devil comes, I'll recognize him. It won't be a problem. That's pride. So he says, be sober. Be vigilant. Notice what else he says here. Whom resist steadfast in, in the faith. So we're to submit ourselves, be subject one to another. We're to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. We're to cast all of our care upon Him. We are to be sober regarding the things of the devil. We're to be vigilant regarding the things of the devil. We are to resist the devil steadfast in faith. We're to resist the devil steadfast in faith. There are so many people that I've heard over the years that will do something wrong, and then they'll say, well, the devil made me do it. As if to say, I didn't have any control over it. Yes, you did. Every sin that we commit, we do willingly. I've heard the phrase, I've used the phrase in the past, of somebody, well, they fell into sin. No, they didn't fall into sin. They saw it, they made a choice, and they did it. There was no falling involved in it. Now, Last Thursday, I was out doing a, 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 helping my son do a house wash, and I was walking up a hill backwards, uh, spraying a deck, and I hit a slick spot. And I'll tell you, I had no choice. I fell. When it comes to my sin, there's a choice. I step willingly into it. So we need to be, uh, we need to resist the devil. It's not something that we can say, well, the devil made me do it, or, or here's one. Well, the Lord knows my heart. I'm not perfect. And we excuse our sin away. No, there needs to be some resisting of the devil. And we do it by being steadfast in the faith. 
You say, how do I combat the devil? Draw closer to the Lord. How do I resist temptation? Submit myself under the mighty hand of God. Yield myself to the leading of the Holy Spirit. Make my will such that it longs for and longs to do the will of God, which is found in Scripture. That's how I resist Satan. The psalmist said, Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against God. This book will keep us from sin. Yielding to it. Having a humble spirit about it. Saying, it tells me where I'm wrong and I don't like it. But I'm glad it does. I'm glad it instructs me in righteousness. I'm glad it reproves me and rebukes me when I need it. Why? Because it helps me resist Satan. You say, how do I resist Satan? By being steadfast in the faith. By growing stronger in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. By taking your will and bringing it into captivity and saying, I don't want my will. I want God's will. That's how we resist Satan. So he tells us to submit under the mighty, uh, submit ourselves one to another, humble ourselves, cast our care upon all of our care upon him, to be sober, to be vigilant about the things of the devil, to resist the devil. And then he makes this statement. He says in verse number nine, "Whom resist steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same afflictions are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world." <coughs> you are not the only one that has to endure those temptations. For you to sit there and say, well, nobody else has had it as bad as me. you just got to understand, I couldn't help it. Other people have been through it too. Other people have been through it too. In fact, our Savior has been through it. He was tempted. In fact, He was tempted, the Bible says, in all points like as we are, yet without sin. We can't use the excuse, well... Nobody's ever had it as bad as I have. Satan's just out to get me. He's, he's working overtime on me, and that's why I did it. No, no. Other people have been through the same afflictions. You can make it through this. Understand what these people are going through that Peter's writing. That, that at this point, Nero has already burned Rome. The persecution has become so great that literally they're taking Christians and hanging them on torches and lighting them as human torches. Women, children. And I'm not trying to cause us to, to be grossed out or, or to be uh, concerned about some of this stuff. But folks, you got to understand what these people were going through. And Peter is charging them. He's saying, listen, you need to resist the devil. You need to understand that these afflictions are not just something you're going through. There are others that have gone through them too. And then I want you to notice what he says. But the God of all grace, who hath called us unto His eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after that ye have suffered a while. That's an interesting, that's an interesting statement. This would, do, this would do us well to know this. God does not always deliver immediately. There's sometimes He lets us go through the trial. Isn't it interesting that God did not deliver the three Hebrew boys before they got into the furnace? God didn't deliver Daniel before he was thrown to the lions. And for a while, Daniel had to pray 
in the middle of the lion's den. And the three Hebrew boys, whatever they were doing in the midst of the fire, besides walking around, they had to do while they were in the fire. Now, did God eventually deliver them? Sure. But did He deliver them immediately? No. There were some that had to go through it. Think of the Apostle Paul. Paul had a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to buffet him. Three different times he asked God to deliver him from that. And all three times God said, My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. God does not always deliver immediately, but He will always deliver. You say, well, I know people that died. Okay. But they were delivered, weren't they? Because from absent from the body were to be what? Present with the Lord. Well, I know people over in the, in the Middle East that uh, in some of these Muslim countries that have been martyred for the cause of Christ and brutally tortured, but they were delivered, weren't they? They sure were. Notice what the Bible says here, "...but the God of all grace who hath called us unto His eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after that ye have suffered a while, make you perfect, establish, strengthen, settle you." So Peter gives some instruction to the believers who are going through this great persecution and affliction. He says you need to submit to the elders, you need to submit one to another, or be subject one to another. You need to humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. You need to cast all your care upon Him, for He careth for you. You need to be sober. You need to be vigilant. You need to resist the devil. You need to know that you're not alone. And the God of grace, He will make you perfect. He will establish you. He will strengthen you. And He will settle you. We're, we're in a unique situation in history. You and I have been given the wonderful privilege to live in a country where we daily enjoy religious freedom. We don't have as much of that religious freedom as there has been in times past, but we have far more than there used to be. And because of this religious freedom, you and I have not had to suffer for the cause of Christ. We may have been criticized and ridiculed, but that is... That's an inconvenience, folks. That is not suffering yet. When we consider what some of these folks went through, and hear these words that Peter gave to them, for us to say, well, Pastor, somebody said this and it really hurt me. Boy, you don't know how bad it hurt me. Those words hurt me. Now, I'm not saying words don't hurt. But for us to turn from the Lord and to do things that are not right, simply because somebody said something and we got hurt? Here are people that are going through persecution and affliction. And Peter's telling them, you need to yield yourselves to one another. Be subject to one another. You need to humble yourself. You need to cast your care upon Him, for he, all your care upon Him, for He cares for you. You need to be sober. You need to be vigilant. You need to resist Satan. The God of all peace, He's going to establish you. He's going to strengthen you. He's going to, he's going to help you through it. Folks, if He can help those people through it, don't you think He can get us through the few little inconveniences we go through today? So let's be strong in the Lord. Let's not be the weak Christian. I, I get the mindset sometimes about my own faith when I compare it to some that I look at in Scripture and I, I think, boy, they didn't have a whole lot of faith. And then I began to look closely at mine. 
And I'll tell you what I think. <laughs> this is not Bible, but there's probably Bible principle to support this. But In fact, I know there's some Bible principle to support this. <clears throat> but I'll tell you what I feel like. I was watching yesterday, my son and I pulled into Lowe's parking lot, and a fellow had a cart, and he had loaded a bunch of mulch and, and plants on this cart. And he's stretched way back, and he's reaching way out and holding the handle like this, and he's walking it out to his car. And his little daughter, couldn't have been about maybe four or five years old, is holding that little bar in the middle, and she's pushing for all her might. I mean, just pushing as hard as she could. I told John, I looked over, I grinned at that, and I looked over at him, and here he is, a big old 15-year-old boy, and I, I'd say I missed the days when he was that little. And I said, I looked over at him and said, man, you used to do that like that right there. You'd, you'd act like you were pushing so hard, and you didn't know it, but I'd be sitting there trying to help you do it, so you'd think you were really doing it. And, and you know, the truth is, they were exerting all their strength and thinking, boy, I've done a great, great work. And the truth is, they really weren't accomplishing a whole lot. You know Why? Because they were still children. But as we begin to grow, as we begin to get stronger, we could now do more. We could resist more. We could, we could push more. We could lift more. And when I look at men in the Bible who I look at and I say, boy, they didn't have a whole lot of faith. And then I turn around and start looking at my own faith. You know what it seems like to me? It seems like these guys who even had little faith in the Scripture are giants spiritually. And me, the faith that I seem to have in the day we live, seems so small. I wonder what it would take for you and I to have great faith. To have our senses exercised. To, to be able to grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ so that we could be steadfast, to be Christians that are seasoned with grace no matter what comes our way. Whether it be great temptation from Satan, whether it be great persecution from the world, whether it be great testing from God, we walk through it with grace and great strength. Because the God of all peace, He will establish us, strengthen us for the task at hand. There's a whole list of things there that Peter charges those early believers going through that great affliction, going through that great suffering. He said, folks, you need to be like this. Can I tell you, those of us who have not had to resist yet unto blood, we've not had to be a martyr. We've not had to be persecuted and beaten like they were. It would do us well to be characterized this way as well. Just be subject one to another. To have a sense of humility. To be able to cast our care upon Him. To just trust God for every, all of our cares. Every bit of it. Give it to Him. To be sober. To be vigilant. To resist steadfast in the faith. The attacks of Satan. To be aware of the fact that there are others that have gone through this too. And to trust that the Lord will establish us and strengthen us for the days ahead. Oh, that we could be characterized like that. We could be known as Christians that have that as part of our lives. I hope that will help you. Let's stand together. We'll be dismissed in prayer. Father, we are thankful for Your Word. And the truth is, as we look at these pages of Scripture, we know what Peter went through. 
as far as persecution, as far as his 